Let's pray. Father, our hearts are full as we come to you this morning. And Lord, all that you are is all that we need. So dear God, as we look to your word, please strengthen our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> how many how many of you know some people who are affected by this storm? Like how many of you know people who live on the coast somewhere from North Carolina to Maine? That's quite a lot of people. <laughs> This storm, I would say, is definitely a trial for those people. Would you agree? Okay. And like Carl said, we are thankful. We're very thankful that it did not come to us. Remember, um, Pastor John mentioned yesterday how, I can't remember where it was. I was talking to him yesterday, yesterday at Men's Prayer. He mentioned how somewhere where there was a storm and the people in the church actually prayed that the storm I think it might have been Jamaica. They prayed that the storm would miss the city and come to them. And God answered their prayer. <laughs> it missed the city, but it came to them. So must be none of us prayed that way. <laughs> but anyway, um, this morning we're going to be looking at handling life's trials. If you want to turn to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 1. By way of illustration... If you think of, how many of you know how a pearl, how many of you, how many of you ladies like pearls? You don't have to show your hands, but yes, I see a couple there. <laughs> how many of you know how a pearl is made? Now, I'm, I'm not going to give you, you know, you could probably come up, he really, little. <laughs> um, I'm not going to give you probably a scientific definition, but, or description, but a pearl is made, simply put, when a little sand gets under the shell of an oyster and causes an irritation. And a pearl is made when that irritation is overcome. So in the same way, God and His purpose and His plan allows these little irritations. And sometimes they're not little irritations. Sometimes they're in the form of hurricanes. Sometimes they're in in the form of hurricanes that shake our faith. But He allows these for a purpose. So what He wants in these trials is for us to overcome them and he can he he makes things beautiful through these through through such trials so i want to ask you a question this morning what's the sand right now under your shell that's festering i want you to think of that i just want you to think of that at the beginning what what is it right now what's the trial in your life right now i know for some of you there are there are some very big things some of you are facing cancer you have people in your in your life in your family that have cancer so what, what is it that, but what is it that God's doing right now? I want each of you to think. What is it He's doing right now in your life to test you? You may be struggling financially. You may have a difficult boss. For those of you who play sports, maybe you have a difficult coach. You may have some other form of illness. You may be suffering, some of these things are for years. You may be suffering from the effects of a divorce. Maybe you've been in a car accident recently. 
Or maybe your car just doesn't work, right? <laughs> maybe your car is your trial. Maybe it's loneliness or persecution. Could be a wayward child, someone you raised for years till they were a teen to trust the Lord and they've gone away. That's a trial. Could be your in-laws. Could just be fear. Or it could, could even be within your own home. It could be your spouse. Maybe if you're not married, it could be your boyfriend. could be your girlfriend. Or it could be your lack of a boyfriend or girlfriend. <laughs> How about this one? This one will affect many of us. It could be the fact that school is about to start. <laughs> Some of you are in college. School's already started. You went to your first day of class, your first week of class. You got your mother load of work. And you're saying, how in the world am I going to get this done in 16 weeks or however long it is? <laughs> so that's a trial. So whatever it is, how do you respond in the midst of your trial? What's God's purpose? Follow along with me. I want to read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Before we jump right into the verse 2, I think it's important. I want to I want to touch on touch on verse 1 a little bit. James. James. Who who was James? There's there's six or seven James in the New Testament, but it boils down to two James, two Jameses, is that right? That could have written this book. One was James the son of Zebedee, but we know that he we know in Acts chapter 12 that he was he was martyred. So he died too early to have written this book. So that leaves us with James who was the brother of Jesus, or the half-brother of Jesus. I want, to, want you to think for a minute. What would it have been like if, if you would have grown up with Jesus as your oldest brother? Think about it a minute. I was discussing this with my, with my wife last night. She said, that, it, you think that what would Jesus do with something new written on a bracelet? <laughs> I, Mary and Joseph might have used that more than once. <laughs> But it, it, it would have been. It would, wouldn't it be frustrating to have your oldest brother or sister be perfect? They never did anything wrong. They never spoke an ill word. They never. Jesus never rolled his eyes at Mary. That would have been frustrating. And we know that we know in um, 
It's Mark chapter 3. We know that Jesus had at least four brothers, and it says, and sisters. So we know that he was the oldest of at least seven children. And so, what would that have been like? Even his, even his parents, um, at the end of Luke chapter 2, it talks about how every year they went up to the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus, it says, when the boy Jesus, when he was 12 years old, he went up there, and when they left, there was a big caravan of people, and they traveled a whole day, and his parents were looking for him. Where is he? They couldn't, they couldn't find him. So it says they went back to Jerusalem and they looked three more days before they found him. So what would it be like if your 12-year-old child, you didn't know where he was for four days? You know, we'd have the police looking for him. You'd be putting up posters in the, all over Alfred and Hornell and all over the place. But they, they didn't. Mary, said, where, Mary was anxious about it. She said, where, well, you know, what were you doing? But Jesus, don't you know I was supposed to be about my father's business? It almost seems like a smart aleck remark, but... Jesus never sinned, so it was appropriate. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> so anyway, what would it have been like if he was your brother? James, we know in John chapter 7, verse 5, when they were grown, when Jesus' ministry had began, it says that not even his brothers were believing in him. So at that point, when they were, when they were a grown men, young men, they weren't believing in him. They didn't understand him. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, right after Jesus had gone had ascended back to heaven. It says, With one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So somewhere between John 7, 5 and Acts 1, 14, something happened to James to change his heart. And I think, you know what, you know what I think it was? When Jesus was raised from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that he appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 people, and it says, Then he appeared to James. I think that changed his life. He appeared to James, and James was no longer the same. And we know, as we traced through the, you could you could trace through the books of book of Acts how James was a very prominent figure in the church in Jerusalem, and so he was he was well respected. It says in when, remember when Peter was in prison in Acts chapter twelve, and in the night he got out and came he knocked on the door and Rhoda comes up opens the door looks at Peter, and. She's so excited, she goes and tells him and doesn't open the door for him. <laughs> but then when she comes back, he knocks again, she comes back. Peter says, he tells him what happened. He said, report these things to James. And in Acts 15, it was James that brought closure to the meeting, the Jerusalem council. So James was a very prominent figure in the church. Paul wrote about him in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. It says that he was a pillar of the church. He was known as James the Just. He had knees like the knees of a camel because he spent so much time praying. So when James comes to write here, think of what his background is. He could have written, James the Just, from the sacred womb of Mary, congenital sibling of Christ, confidant of the Messiah. He could have been very proud about what he was writing. But he, he, when he starts here, he's very humble. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than claiming royalty, he just claimed, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord. And he was writing to those who were formerly in his church. Those, the 12 tribes were those believers, Jewish believers, who were, says, who are dispersed abroad, who are outside of Jerusalem. He says they, they, were, they were dispersed because of persecution. Some of them were, they, they fled literally for their lives. Some of them left their homes. They left all that they had. Some of them left their loved ones. But they, they got out of there. And so James sent this letter and he says, greetings. And greetings actually means rejoice or be glad. 
So as we come to this topic of trials, the book of James is a series of tests. And the very first thing that we see is the test of their faith. So think of these believers who've been persecuted and they're coming here. Their faith is surely being tested. So I want, before, we, before we look at it, though, I want to make a distinction here. We know in verse 3 it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. God sends tests. Will you agree with that? God sends tests. But, this here's the distinction. God tests, but God does not tempt. Okay? In verse 13, he later goes on, right after this, Section He goes on and says, And let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So God tests, but God does not tempt. And it's, it's, the words trial and temptation are like cousins. They're actually, it's actually the same word, but it's, but it's translated here. It's, it's, this, is, this is test, but a test can become a temptation What when we don't handle it right when we don't handle it correctly, right? Does that make sense? So, how, how, does a, how does a Christian, how do we as believers, how do we properly deal with a trial? Or how, how are you to handle the sand that's festering under your shell this morning when getting rid of that sand's not an option? We have to face it. So, if you have your outline, if you want to follow along, We'll be looking at our attitude in trials in verses 2 to 4 and our advance through trials in verses 5 through 12. Originally, I was just planning to bring the first verses 2 to 4, but through this past week, I just thought it's, it's really a whole thought. So I'm probably going to spend most of our time, we're probably going to spend most of our time in the beginning, but I hopefully, God willing, we'll get to the end <laughs> without being too late. <laughs> um, so first of all, look at, let's look at our attitude in trials. The first thing James says is, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, in verse 2. We're to respond with joy. Think of this. The people have fled for their lives. And James writes them a letter and says, Greetings, rejoice, consider it all joy. They're thinking, has James gone mad? Has he lost touch with the reality? He's like a typical pastor who can write a sermon but he's out of touch with what his people are going through. But James is not calling the people to be happy, like you're familiar with Bobby McFerrin, who that is. <laughs> There's a little song I wrote. You might. <laughs> that's as far. That's as far as I'll go. <laughs> Don't worry. Be happy. It's not that kind of a. It's not that kind. Of, that's not what the joy is. He's calling us to. Okay. Hebrews twelve twelve eleven says all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who are trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So it's not like James is saying, hey, think it's great that you're having a good time. Or how wonderful it is to embrace your trial. How wonder, wonderful it is that you're being persecuted. James is not being, um, he's not being facetious here. He's not being, he's not, he's not being sarcastic. This is a, it's actually a command. It's a, and you know what? When you read something like this, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. It's not something... The commands in the Word of God, no command in the Word of God are we able in and of ourselves to obey. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to obey God's Word. We can never do it on our own. We're not saved on our own, and we can't live the Christian life on our own. 
So it takes God's strength. So he says, consider. He says, think of it. This is a willful decision in your mind. I like what the one translation says, count yourself supremely happy. Stop and think. Thinking, we need to stop. All of us, all of us every day, we need to stop and think, don't we? When, when things happen, how often do we just react instead of stop and think? Stop. Thinking should always precede action or reaction. So joy then is, is a God-given emotional response to the truth of the Word of God. So let me ask you, have, have you thanked God for what He's doing through whatever fix that you're in? Sometimes we can't see it. You know, as a culture, as a culture, we seek to remove any discomfort in life, don't we? Is it any wonder why the number one prescription drug in America is a painkiller? Now, I'm not saying if you have a headache, not to take something for it. I'm not saying if you're really sick, not to go to the doctor, okay? I'm not saying that. James isn't saying that either. You may think of your trial as an intrusion, but God loves you so much that He's producing in you something far greater than you can ever imagine. He says, count it all joy. I want you to consider it pure, unmixed, overflowing joy. This is a conscious awareness. He wants James, he, God wants us this morning, He wants each of us to have a conscious awareness of what He's doing in our lives through the trial or through the storm. And I wish that, I wish that, I wish this next word wasn't there. Consider all joy, my brethren. Wouldn't it be great if it said if? <laughs> but what's it say? It says when. It's not if, but it's when. So this morning, if you're not going through a trial, if life's been relatively easy going for you, praise God. But it's good to have a plan ahead of time. It's good to know what kind of an attitude am I going to have. You can think ahead. You can plan ahead. And so often trials come as unwelcome intrusions, aren't they? The only per- I don't think there's very many people who, who say, yeah, this is great. This is great. But you know, John Bunyan was in prison for 12 years who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And there was a point where it came, at any point he could have been released from prison if he would have just denied Christ. But there was a point where God just opened his heart so much to him and his word during that time in prison. There was a point, point where he said, if it's lawful, I wish that more trouble would come so I could see God more if it was lawful. It's kind of like what Paul said where he prayed in Romans. You know, if it was possible, I wish that myself could be cursed for the sake of my brethren. (coughs) So he says, consider it all joy, not if, but when you encounter or when you fall into various trials. That word encounter is the same word that's used when the Good Samaritan was going down from, not the Good Samaritan, but the man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It says he fell among thieves. He suddenly became surrounded by thieves, by thugs. So it's the same idea. Or it's the idea of encounter falling into. Is like if you're on the ship and you fell into the ocean, like what happened to Jonah, he was totally surrounded by the water. Totally surrounded. That's the idea. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. This stresses the great variety of trials. It's multicolored. In, in, the, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word for 
The word for various here is the same word they used with Joseph's coat of many colors. So trials can be, it can be, a, it can be a, trials don't have to be some huge thing, okay? It can be a little thing. It can be a little thing. And we don't have to, I'm, I'm not trying to get you to think up one if you can't think of one. <laughs> but it can, it come, they come in so many shapes, so many sizes. So how are you doing this morning? Are you, are you able to thank God for your thorn, for what he's doing through that? For what he's going to do through that, even though you can't see? See, it's God. God, Paul, remember what happened with Paul when he had a thorn in his flesh and it was a messenger of Satan? It was a messenger of Satan, but ultimately it was God who, who allowed that, right? And even Satan, went to, when he went to Job, it was God. Satan had to get permission from Job. So you know what? I think that's one thing. A lot of times things, bad things happen. We, we can blame it on Satan. You know, this morning, I want you to forget about Satan a minute, okay? And recognize that it's God that's brought you here this morning. It's God who's given you whatever hardship He's given you. It's God that's allowed that. So I'm trying to... That, with our attitude, our attitude is our... If we're believers, we have to look to God. We have to trust in God. So that's what I want to encourage you with this morning and bring you, bring you to. Look over to 1 Peter. Just the James, flip over one book, a few pages to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 6 and 7. Peter, Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Notice, notice that, if necessary. You know, if something's going on, if there's some storm that's hit you, it's God that deemed that necessary in your life, okay? He said, why is he doing this? Why, why? You say, why is God doing this? He says in verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the, God the Father is test, tests our faith for the purpose of strengthening our faith. That's why. And that's, that, that brings us... Let me ask you this morning. Are, are you able... Are you, are you rejoicing? Don't blame God. Don't blame Satan. Don't blame God. Because He's allowed it to happen. But this is hard, isn't it? You say, why? Why should I rejoice? You don't know... Mr. Clancy, you don't know respectfully. With all due respect, Brendan, you don't know what I'm going through. You know what? I don't. But you know what? You know who does? God does. God knows exactly what you're going through. And He's put you there. He's put you in the pickle for a purpose. How's that? Um, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> it's kind of nice though, isn't it? Put you in the pickle for the purpose. So, remember the reason, okay? That's, that's number, number letter, letter B. Respond with joy. Remember the reason. And the reason is this. We see that in verse 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. So this is God's perspective, okay? If you look at it in your Bible, if you look where it says encounter or fall into various trials, that's how we see it. We fall into various trials. That's our perspective. But from God's perspective, it's the testing of your faith. So really these two things are equal. One is from us looking up of these trials and God's looking down and testing their faith. What's God's purpose when He tests our faith? What's God's purpose? Let, let me back up. I've kind of I've mentioned this a few times. At the heart of gaining a proper attitude in trials 
is this. God is in control. Can you say that with me? God is in control. And it's, it can't just be a, it can't just be academic. It has to be into, it has to be part of our faith. We have, do you really believe that? Do you really believe in a God who's sovereign over everything in the universe? Do you believe in a God who, before the world began, sent this hurricane Irene and there's not one molecule along from North Carolina to Maine that's going to be moved without God's permission? Do you believe in that kind of a God? Do you believe in that kind of a God? Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. And then Lamentations 3.38 says, Jeremiah said, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Or you could say good and trials go forth? So this testing, why does God do this? It's a picture, what, what we just read in Peter, and then also here in James, testing. It's the idea of a smelting pot. You know what a smelting pot is? It's where a gold, a, what a goldsmith uses. He puts his, puts his, throws his gold into the pot and he turns on the heat until it melts, and then all the impurities and dross rises to the top. And then what's he do? He scoops it off, scoops off the impurities, and then he lets it cool. And then, then he looks into the image of the gold to see how clear his reflection is. If it's not what he likes, then he turns back on the fire, heats it up again. So that's a picture of what God does with our life when he allows storms into our life. God, God, has God turned the heat up on you this morning? Because he wants to bring out that which is lacking. He wants to bring out the immaturity. He wants to bring out what is in the way of us being more like his son. What does God see when he looks into the image of your reflection? Does he see grumbling, complaining, dissatisfaction, or bitterness? Or does he see the image of the Lord Jesus? And so often, we don't respond right. But this is what he's doing. He says, knowing. Again, it's like consider. It's think. This, this is like, this is a... This is what we can know. This is what we can cling to. That the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance is the word that means to remain under. How many of you have ever seen the Olympics? The weightlifters in the Olympics. You know, they get, there's this one guy from Russia once a number of years back. His name was Alexis. And he was, I wouldn't know why even is shaking his hand probably. But he, he, would get that, he would get that weight up and you'd throw the weight up and then you had to hold it there until you heard the bell and then you could let it down. So that's a picture of the endurance that God wants us to have. You say, how long? How long do I have to remain under it? You have to remain under it until God, until you hear the divine bell, you could say, until he releases you. And what, so what's he trying to do with this endurance? What's he, what's, what's, what's he trying to do? He wants you to be tough spiritually. He wants you to be tough spiritually. It's a spiritual toughness that he's creating in us that we can't produce in and of ourselves. So we need to have the mindset in the midst of our storm, in the midst of our thorn, whatever's poking at us, whatever's festering under our shell, we need to have the mindset, not how can I solve this, but rather, Lord, what do you want me to learn? And we know that Job, Job is a picture of that endurance. It says over in James chapter 5, verse 10. And in Hebrews 10, 
the writer of the Hebrews said in Hebrews 10.36, he said, you have need of endurance. And then he, in, in chapter 12, verse 1, he calls us to run with endurance. And then he speaks of Jesus who endured the cross. See, your hope, our hope needs to be in God, not in things, not in circumstances. Because you know what? God can change, change things with your trial, with your storm. God can change things in a minute. And he's never late. Do you sing when trials come? Not about your trouble, but about the greatness of God. That's what Paul and Silas did when they were in the Roman prison in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. They were singing hymns at midnight. Paul actually wrote a book about this. Did you know that? It's called Philippians. (laughs) You know, he said, what's he say in Philippians 4, verse 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And later on in that same chapter, he said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance that I'm in. But Paul's joy, Paul's hope, had, had, had very little to do with the circumstances and it had everything to do with his hope in the gospel and his hope in God's character. So respond with joy. Remember the reason, endurance. And thirdly, recognize the purpose. Recognize the purpose. And that is, in verse 4, maturity. The purpose of our trial is maturity. He says, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. Let endurance, let the strength that God will give you to remain under your trial let that have its perfect result. See, James, as James is writing this book, not, not this book, but the letter to James that he was writing to the 12 tribes, as he was writing that, he wanted them to be holy living for the Lord. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Also to be holy, H-O-L-Y. But he wanted them to be fully living for the Lord. That's why this book, there's some people who say this book of James, like it doesn't belong because it's all choppy, it's a bunch of jumbled things put together. But, God is not a God of disorder. He's allowed this to be in the New Testament. And there was a specific purpose. It was almost like he was saying, hurry, you've got to read this before someone comes and knocks on your door and takes your way to your death. The psalmist said this in Psalm 119, verses 67. Psalm 119, 67. He says, there, before I was afflicted, he says, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. And then in verse 71, it says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Do you see it as a good thing when you're afflicted? That's hard. This is our attitude. Again, this is the attitude that God wants us to have and it's not something we can come up with on our own. How do you respond? So often today... In today's culture, we want everything instantaneously, don't we? And, and that's definitely crept into our lives and into the church. It's like microwave Christianity. I want it now. But think about some of the men in the Bible. You know when Abraham was promised his son? How many years it was before he got him? I think it was 25 years. And how many years did, Mo, how many years did Moses wander through the desert? 40, yeah. And then even the Apostle Paul, when he was miraculously transformed 
in Acts chapter 9, he didn't just go right out and start preaching. We know in Galatians that it was anywhere between 14, 17 years that he was in the desert. What was he doing in the desert that time? The Lord was putting him through what he needed to go through, teaching him what he needed to know so he could use him for his purpose. So maturity, he wants us to be like Christ. That's what maturity is, right? He wants us to be like Christ and he wants us to be complete, it says. He wants us to be whole and it says so you may be whole and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. He wants us to be, have no blemish, complete in every part. You familiar with 1 Corinthians 10.13? It says no, actually in, in the, it says no temptation has overtaken you. Remember what I said, the, remember what we said, the word trial, temptation, you, you could put trial in there. So you could say it this way, you could say no trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tried beyond what you're able. But with the testing, he will provide the way of escape. And it specifically says the way of escape. And then so that you'll be able to endure it. He'll provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. So the way of escape, like we said, it's not an option to get rid of it, right? The way of escape for an oyster is not to get that sand out of there. He embraces it. And for us, that little irritation or whatever it is, by the grace of God, embrace that and God will make something beautiful out of it. See, So see, see what it is? Our attitude in trials, it has everything to do with our character, with what God wants to make us. He wants to make us like Christ. So if we value comfort more than character then trials will rock your world. If you value comfort more than character, I think it was, I think it was Warren Wearsby who said, if we live for the present and not for the future, then trials will make you bitter and not better. So what is it right now? What is it that you're facing right now? The Lord is trying to produce in you endurance and God knows what he's about. It's like the little boy. Think of the little boy who was You've probably heard this before, but think of the little boy who was watching the butterfly trying to get out of the cocoon. And it was struggling so much and it was cracked a little bit. And he just couldn't stand it, seeing him struggle, so he ripped it a little bit. And then the butterfly comes out. And the butterfly sits there and its wings are wet and it can't fly. You know why? Because the struggle was essential for its development. God has placed you in whatever it is because it's essential for making you like Christ. So with, with that mindset, with that heartfelt attitude, then you, you might then, then, we can, then we can face our trials and we can, what, what I've said secondly here, advance through trials. And I see I'll have to go a little quicker now. <laughs> advance through trials. Maybe you're in the midst of something, you recognize, you, you, you can accept the fact, okay, it's from God. I know he wants to me to he wants me to be here until he's gonna until I'm until he's gonna send me the bell. But how, you don't know what to do. So how do we do it? How do how do we advance? What's our approach to be? Well, it says in verse five. It says if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, 
who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You need to seek God. Seek God. What do you do when something happens? What's the first thing you do? Who do you turn to? Do you seek a friend or a counselor or a doctor? Or do you read the latest self, self-help book? Or do you pray? Like I said, it's not a bad thing to go see a doctor or a counselor. It's a good thing. But if you pray first, then God will use that for them to give wisdom with what's going on. See, God, it's God's wisdom that enables us to endure life's trials with joy. So the first thing we need to recognize about wisdom, it says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. And then Proverbs 4, 7, it says, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. So the wise believer, in the midst of a trial, will cry out to God for help. What is wisdom? Simply put, wisdom is this. Wisdom is skill for living. Wisdom is the God-given ability to apply His truth to your life, to everyday life. In wisdom, it allows us to see above the trial, right? Wisdom won't just allow us to say, oh, I'm falling into trials, but allow us, it allows us to see above it and say, okay, God, what are you doing in the testing of my faith? Do you need that wisdom? You can come to God because it says, if any of you lacks, let him ask of God. And it said, who gives to all generously. God is a gracious God. He gives to all generously. He gives to all abundantly. It overflows. There's no limit. God is focused on blessing His children. If we would but ask. Someone said that God, God's wisdom, God has a water faucet of wisdom that will continually be turned on if only we'll ask. If only we'll ask. And you never need, it says he gives without reproach. He gives without reproach. He gives to, let me back up, he gives to all. He gives to all. If you're here this morning and you think, oh, I'm so unworthy that God can, there's no, don't go there, okay? There's no amount of unworthiness that is greater than what God can give and bless and overcome because that's been done in the cross of Jesus Christ. So you never need fear your unworthiness. You never need fear that your unworthiness limits God's graciousness, okay? Your sin is never too great for God. And He gives without reproach. He's not going to blame you. He's not going to humiliate you or scold you and say, where have you been? What took you so long? He's not like the little boy who went to his father and says, Daddy, will you help me with my math? And he's like, figure it out yourself. God's not like that. Aren't you glad? I am. So have you asked God? Have you asked God? He says, ask and it will be given to you. Do you believe that? It will be given to you. That's a promise. And Spurgeon said this. He said, God's promises made 2,000 years ago are as valid as if they were just made this morning. Have you asked God? Secondly, strengthen your faith. This is how we advance through trials. Seek God, strengthen your faith. Jesus in Matthew 9, there was two blind men who came and Jesus said, do you believe that I am able to do this, that I am able to restore your sight? 
And they said, yes. And he said, it shall be done according to your faith. Somebody asked you this morning, what's, what's the this in your life this morning? Do you believe that God is able to do this? Do you believe he's able to take care of this for you? Whatever the situation is. Do you believe that this morning? What's the this? And it takes faith, he says. What's faith? Faith simply is trust in God, right? Dependence upon God. Faith, by God's grace that he gives us, allows us not to panic in the midst of a trial. So how important is, how important is it to manifest faith in my prayer? Well, he says in verse 6, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. If any of you have at all looked at any pictures of this hurricane the last two days, you know what this is like. This is the one who doubts in his prayers to God isn't hit by Hurricane Irene. They're hit by Hurricane Doubt. And that violently shakes your heart. And God says we don't. So how do we, how do we strengthen our heart? How do we do that? First John 5.14 said, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So this is it. Don't be a doubter because a doubter thinks of himself as a victim. Okay? You're not a victim. Rather than seeing yourself as a victim, oh, this has happened to me, see yourself as an active participant in God's sovereign hand working out his purpose in your life. See yourself as an active participant with God's providence making you more like Christ. Because if we doubt... Doubting is fatal. What's it say? The man who doubts, he says in verse 7, Let not, that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Unstable in all his ways means you'll be unstable in everything you do. If you're going through a trial and you're not facing it properly, you'll be unstable in the work. You'll be unstable at home. You'll be unstable in what you want to do in the church. Everything you do, it says in all his ways, he'll be unstable. He'll be like shifting sand. Be like walking on a high wire trying to accomplish the purpose. You know, if we had to walk like that we'd, on a high wire, we, we couldn't live. So you trust in God right now? Seek God. Strengthen your faith. And then thirdly, set your hope on heaven. These people who had fled during the persecution, some of them had literally left everything, so they lost everything. But James is saying to him in verses 9, he talks to the brother of humble circumstances, and then to the rich man, he's saying, we're all going to end up in the same place. Right? Nothing we did we bring into this world, nothing are we going to take out of it. So we need, to, we need to weigh the value of what you possess in light of eternity. Weigh the value of what you possess in light of eternity. When your health is in jeopardy, you really don't care what the stock market's doing, do you? When, you, when, it's, when, it's, when something is so close to you you really don't care about these things about the possessions of this world and it says in verse 12 it says blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he's been approved he will receive the crown of life that's not a position it's a reward he'll receive the reward which the Lord has promised to those who love him let me ask you this morning do you think about heaven do you, how much do you think about heaven? Do you long to be there? Or if you died today, would that be an interruption in your plans? I've got to be honest with you. If I died today, from this side of heaven, that would be a great interruption in my plans. I've got a beautiful wife. 
little baby girl. We've got another one on the way, if you didn't know. <laughs> but that would be an interruption to my plans. You know, I want to see him grow up. But you know what? If I died today and I went to heaven, from God's perspective, I'm sure I'd be having a blast. <laughs> and I think every one of us would. We're, we need to be more... We need to live so that our tentacles are not as so much in this world. There's a man named Christopher Love who was a preacher in the 17th century in England. And he was falsely charged with treason. And on July 15, 1651, he was beheaded. And it, there's a letter that we have that his wife wrote to him the day before he was executed. And I'm going to read it to you. This, is, this shows how he handled the ultimate trial in life. She writes, Before I write a word further, I beg you, Christopher, not to think that your wife is now writing, rather a friend. I hope you've freely given up your wife and your children to God, who has said in Jeremiah 49.11, Leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive, and let your widows trust in me. Your maker will be my husband and a father to your children. Oh, that the Lord would keep you from having one troubled thought about your family. I desire to freely give you up to your father's hands and not only look upon this as a crown of glory for you to die for Christ, but as an honor for me that I should have a husband to leave for Christ. I dare not speak to you nor have a thought within my own heart of my own unspeakable loss, but entirely keep my eye fixed upon your inexpressible and inconceivable gain. You leave but a sinful mortal wife to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. You leave but children, brothers and sisters, to go to the Lord Jesus, your eldest brother. You leave friends on earth to go to the enjoyment of saints and angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. In glory, you leave earth for heaven and exchange a prison for a palace. If earthly affections begin to arise, I hope that the spirit of grace that's within you will quell them, knowing that all things here below are but dung and dross in comparison of those things that are above. I know you keep your eye fixed on the hope of glory, Christopher which makes your feet trample on the loss of earth. My dear, I know God has not only prepared glory for you and you for it, but, I, but I'm persuaded that he will sweeten the way for you to come to the enjoyment of it. When you're putting on your clothes tomorrow morning, oh, think, I am now putting on my wedding garments to go to be married to my everlasting Redeemer. When the messenger of death comes to get you, to take you to the block, let him not seem dreadful to you, but look on him as a messenger that brings you tidings of eternal life. When you go up the scaffold, think, as you said to me, that it is but your fiery chariot to carry you up into your father's house. And when you, when you lay your precious head down, to receive your father's stroke, remember what you said to me. Though my head should be severed from my body, yet in that moment, my soul will be united with my head, the Lord Jesus in heaven. And though it may seem something bitter, 
that by the hands of men we are parted a little sooner than otherwise we might have hoped. Yet let us consider that it is the decree and the will of our Father, and it will not be long before we shall enjoy one another in heaven again. Let us comfort one another with these sayings. Be comforted, my dear heart. It is but a little stroke, and you shall be there where the weary shall be at rest, and where the wicked shall cease from troubling. Remember that you may eat your dinner with bitter herbs, yet you shall have a sweet supper with Christ that night. My dear, by what I write to you, I do not intend to teach you, for these comforts I have received from the Lord by you teaching me. I'll write no more, nor trouble you any further, but commit you into the arms of God, with whom you and I will forever be. Farewell, my dear. I shall never see your face again till we both behold the face of the Lord Jesus at that great day. Mary Love. How do we get that kind of perspective? When the ultimate trial comes, how can you and I think like that? Be glad that God is doing whatever it takes and he's going to give you the strength to, to go through it. He's doing whatever it takes to make you like Christ. Seek him. Seek him early. Seek him often. Seek him always. Be strong in your faith. Don't doubt. Be like the man who when he brought, he had his son, I think it's in Mark chapter 9, and he brought him to Jesus because the disciples couldn't, couldn't cast him out. And when he brought him to Jesus, he's, he says, if you can, can you help me? And Jesus said, if you can? He said, all things are possible if you believe. And he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. You may need to say that this morning in the midst of whatever it is. I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. And then set your hope on heaven. Thank you for how you have endured the cross. And because of that, we're here today and we're alive in Christ. And no matter what we're going through, we thank you that you're with us. And we pray and we ask that you would sweeten the way until we see you face to face and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen.